This is Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. This week on Race Capital, we are talking public education and budget season. We will talk to 3rd District School Board Rep Kenya Gibson, Brianna Nomi of the Legal Aid Justice Center, Kristen Reed of Richmond for All, and Ibby Hahn, Director of Virginia Student Power Network. First up, we'll talk to Kenya Gibson, 3rd District School Board Representative for Richmond Public Schools. Thanks so much for having me on the show. The budget process in general is starts at the beginning of the year. And so every year, the school board is tasked with adopting a needs-based budget. And so the administration puts forward those things that they want to include in the budget. And then, and basically what we're saying as a board are, yes, these are the things that we, we need to have in addition to what we had last year and that we would want to include in the next year's budget. Many of the things that were included in the budget had been things that we've been talking about as part of the strategic plan. There was a big ask in terms of what we'd be including this year. Some of the things that were carryover things from last year were actually adding some back some staff. So if we recall last year, there were, we celebrated the fact that we got more money for our operating budget, but at the same time, there was a cost to that as well. You know, we cut, you know, many millions of dollars of central office staff in order to make some of those purchases. And so one of the line items that was, you know, which I raised concern with and some of my colleagues on the board as well was the elimination of several of the attendance officers. And so these are folks that are out on the streets making sure that our kids are getting to school. And those positions were cut. I remember that. Yes. And subsequently, we saw an uptick in, in truancy. And so this year, the administration proposed actually adding those positions back in. There were also last year's budget concerns that Myself and colleagues, some of my colleagues also flagged was that budgeted amount for some of the new positions didn't seem to reflect true costs. And so in this year's budget, there was about $500,000 worth of add-ons in order to ensure that we were fully budgeting the costs of those new positions. So in in the budget process in, in general, the position I take or what I feel really strongly about is, is that we don't have to go back and ask for more and that we we are being really as transparent and as planful as possible in this budget process to ensure that then the execution can be can be uh, seamless and straightforward. And, and so, you know, early in the budget process and then until we've adopted it, that's basically been a key point is, is making sure that, that we're being planful. So it's not just a matter of seeing what, hey, we want this one line item. The question is, well, what is that line item? What is it going to get us? And let's talk about the details of that because that's really where the discussion should be. Right, and before the budget is passed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so there's been a bunch of talk about the budget and then the curriculum. That piece just seemed to be a really hot-button issue for teachers. Parents were on that Facebook live commenting things. 
what's the deal with the curriculum? So over the past couple of years, the administration has been piloting new curriculums. You know, in terms of what the school district is teaching, that's mandated by the state. That's what our actual standards are that we are required to adhere to. And so, you know, teachers have the flexibility to be able to pull tools and, and develop their, their curriculum throughout the year. And as part of the Memorandum of Understanding, we've been submitting lesson plans and such. And so the administration piloting a kind of a boxed curriculum in and focused on math over the past couple of years. And as a parent, I felt the I felt the change. So, you know, I mean, I think anytime there is change, there are those who weren't used to the way that it was before. And and so perhaps you might not feel it. But, um, you know, if you have a, a child that is further along in elementary school, there was a shift in terms of how how math in particular, was taught. You know, kind of rolling out the curriculum was a substantial line item in the budget, you know, in excess of a million dollars. And there was, leading into the process, there were some teacher feedback groups, I believe, that the administration created. And then they had some presentations that they made in the community. I, I question how many folks were able really to engage in those discussions. They weren't those, those, those presentations, I don't believe for the most part, were were streamed and shared. And those folks I've heard from that did participate um, really felt that it was, you know, kind of felt like a sales pitch for these different vendors. That's kind of the vibe I got at the presentation during the board meeting personally. So yeah, I, I do wonder about the quality of those public hearings or meetings for the curriculum. Right. So the curriculum was something that we were talking about, you know, kind of leading up to the closure of schools. And and then after that closure happened, basically the public process stopped. Yeah. You know, the the board was asked to adopt a resolution that gave the administration the authority to make purchases that were under a million dollars with emailed approval process. There was a a, a true delay in terms of being able to hold meetings virtually. And and, and in in that delay, we really lost a lot of time to be able to continue to govern and, and, and make plans. I reached out to the administration in, in March inquiring, okay, so now the school district is closed. How is that going to impact this year's budget? You know, not even thinking about next year, but, but we have to presume that, you know, with schools being closed, that, that whatever fund balance, which is the amount of money left over, would be larger this year than we'd expected it to be. And, and so to be frank, it took a long time to get to that number. And, and I, and I'm, and I'm not really sure that we have a true, a true dollar amount in terms of what the remaining funds are. So, so as we then were able to reconvene virtually, myself and several of my colleagues continue to ask that question of, okay, well, how much money do we have to work with right now that we could be thinking about for next year's budget? Right, that's step um, A. 
Right. And, and also, you know, looking at, okay, if there are vacant positions that haven't been filled, particularly positions that are not at the school level, this might be a time to look at that to ensure, hey, before we make this hire, given the circumstances that we're in as a district, is it time to shift our priorities? And so it took some time to, to get answers in terms of how many, you know, what were those vacant positions and what the, what the implication or what, how much money we had left over. And so once we, we began going through the budget process, there was a, a, a good amount of question about moving forward with this new curriculum, I believe from a majority of my, my colleagues on the board. And, and so we, we talked about it and the concerns were both, I think, for the folks that um, were on board with this kind of box curriculum approach, still had hesitation because of the ability to really execute it fidelity given the circumstances. And so the administration came back at, a, at the following meeting and, and decided to propose that the curriculum would now be funded with the fund balance that we had been asking about. And so, you know, that was concerning to me because you don't have the number. Well, and we weren't given the number until they essentially, what I felt was that we were told that there was no remaining money. And then all of a sudden the money was found to be able to then use on this curriculum that myself and many of my colleagues were questioning whether or not this was the right time for it. Mm-hmm. So as we were then meeting virtually and, and talking more about the budget, there was significant input and concern primarily amongst teachers and parents about moving forward with this new curriculum. And, you know, it's understandably so right now as a, as a district, we are, you know, we were not, not really in a position to be able to move smoothly into, into virtual learning. And so parents and teachers are adjusting to that. And there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the fall is going to look like. And teachers, I do have a lot of question about this box curriculum approach. And so all combined, there was a lot of, a lot of question and concern, which I shared. Yeah. And thank you for sharing it. Um, I know that when you were reading it, I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook Live and I'm watching these comments flood in from what seem to be teachers, parents just saying, thank you, Kenya, for voicing these concerns and these thoughts. So I, I really appreciate the critical thought that you're putting into this process as it goes forward. Thank you. So, and this is, this might be something that you've heard from other folks too, as it pertains to this particular curriculum, is that is, is the optics of the company that has been selected for the new curriculum, DC-based company, and they are a formerly a nonprofit, but this is a company that, you know, sees revenues, I think $66 million company, essentially, that has had decided to relocate to Richmond and is now uh, as office space, I think, near the new Whole Foods. And that was announced in, in December. And so it does seem very coincidental that this is the company that has been selected for this, this investment. And, I would um, say, yeah. 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 And a large part of the investment is for professional development for the staff. You know, it's not actually for materials, it, it is for is for training. And so, you know, regardless of whether or not we think that the cost for the professional development is is fair and suitable, 
then there's also the question of the cost of the professional development, given that that professional development may need to be delivered virtually. Right. So there's quite a few considerations that come into play with the virus and the fall, which we may have to dig into on a on an episode later because it's going to be a big question. But yeah, so that, but it does, it brings up a lot more questions that don't have answers yet or that perhaps y'all need to dig into together further. And so I do appreciate you all pushing this conversation to have for more time, like you did yeah. uh, voting for the budget. And so I am relatively new to all this school board talk. Yeah. I just graduated from school and coming yeah. back to the city uh, that I'm from, just learning about the history of the school board. I've heard when it comes to fighting for a people first budget, that's something that you've, you've been doing. How has that looked for you here in Richmond, even before COVID? When I think of what makes a budget, a people first budget, what I, what I think of is a budget that really leans very heavily on the input of, of teachers and school-based staff. I think that it, it's a budget that prioritizes those truly essential things first and and those essential things that are particularly important for those students with the highest level of need i think that uh, you know a a a people first budget is one where the people can get involved in the process and in order to do that we need documentation as an example if we have a line item in the budget for a stem program rather than just a line item that says a million dollars or whatever it is what is it that's going into that so when we're talking about a curriculum what are the parts and pieces that are going into that so that we can say hey maybe this is something we can do can we do it this way instead so it's really not just about the budget but it's also about the plans and i think this year in particular where there is reasonable question as to how we'll be able to execute things, that plans component is particularly important as we're making these decisions. Yeah, I'm hearing this like informed decision making skill, like just shining through, because it's really important. And yeah, like you've been doing this really for a while, even back when Mayor Stoney was first elected, and you came out against the education compact, there standing with teachers at City Hall. Yeah, when I'm thinking about your, your people-first work, I guess these are the things that come to mind to me as well. Thank you, Kenya. Thank you for saying so. In terms of what's next, is there a timeline that people can be aware of? The next thing, so we have another meeting coming up. Our meetings as a board are the first and third Mondays of the month. At, the, at our last meeting, we determined that we adopted a budget, but we pulled out the curriculum decision. And so at our next meeting, we will be voting, I believe, on the curriculum and the dollars that would be associated with that. So if there are folks that want to participate and and submit public comment, I would encourage them to do so. That will be happening next. And then I believe that, that because of the circumstances that really we're going to be relying on updated projections in terms of revenue as we move forward. So we've adopted a budget based on the numbers that we were provided in, in March, April, Obviously, given the state of the economy right now, that could and, and likely change. And so it is possible that we will have to revisit the, the budget process as we continue to move forward. The good news is, is that, you know, a big element of the budget that we adopted was a raise for a 2% raise for, for teachers. Yes. And 
yes. And so that was that was good news. And and so I know there were some that are concerned that if we are, are cut back, that we'll have to go back on that promise. But but that will be a contractual decision. And so and so as soon as we're able to have those contracts finalized, this is a commitment that we are holding to. And so we'll have to look if there is a need to make some shifts. We'll have to look other places. So Kenya, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I do think that the past couple of years, we've seen more and more examples of advocating for um, certain measures and proposals under the name of, of equity. And, and I just think that we have to be really cautious in how we use that word. And I think as, as, as citizens, as residents, we should we should demand the use of that word to be to be true and authentic is a coliseum is it about equity no i don't think so is the property tax is it about equity when we've got folks who are living in such gentrified neighborhoods and could get pushed out is that about equity no i don't think so no and when it came to come to this cur- curriculum you know, where instead of hiring staff members to be in our high need schools, paying a company that sees revenues of tens of millions of dollars a year, I question whether that is really about equity too. So I think that that as a theme is something that we should be cognizant of as, as you know, everyone wants their ideas to be embraced, but, but to always do that under the guise of equity, I think does us all a, a, a disservice. I don't really need a D, I need the money. All a bad need is a money. I got bands in the coop. Bussin' out the roof. I got bands in the coop. Touch me, I'll shoot. I'll shake a little. You get a little bag and take it to the store. Get a little cash. You shake it real fast, you get a little more. I got bands in the coop. Bussin' out the roof. I got bands in the coop. Bussin' out the roof. I got a now we'll speak with Brianna Nomi from the Just Children program with the Legal Aid Justice Center. So as Kalia said, my name is Brianna Nomi. I am um, one of two co-chairs for Richmond for All's Public Education Working Group. I'm really excited. We have some exciting and ambitious work we're gearing up for. Before I got involved in organizing work, I was a public school teacher in Richmond Public Schools for 10 years. I taught uh, fourth grade kindergarten and I was a reading specialist. So my heart and soul is with RPS. I'm very invested in its success. Um, And I've been fighting with groups and coalitions like Richmond Teachers for Social Justice and Power in Richmond. And we've been working to build power and frame the narrative about public ed for some time. I'm also, like Kalia said, I'm a community organizer with Legal Aid Justice Center. I am helping to spearhead the campaign called Fund Our Schools. And it's a statewide campaign that envisions a Virginia where every student um, has the opportunity to attain a high quality public education. And I think in this role, I've seen how it's really systemic that elected officials pass the buck on school funding and will find all the excuses to shirk their responsibility to fully fund schools. So, you know, it's happening everywhere. We're fighting it everywhere. Yes, it's a real, it too is perhaps a pandemic. Can you give us your take on what are these budget conversations that have been happening with the Richmond Public School Board recently? Yeah, so I could, you know, speak on this issue forever. And I think that's why Kristen and I have been trying to find opportunities to do these debriefs on the board meetings, because there's just so much to talk about and unpack and process. 
So, you know, my overall assessment is that this budget per usual was a really problematic omnibus bill. And I think that some of the, the main things that I had issues with, it was largely decontextualized from this pandemic that we know is really hurting and impacting our communities. And, you know, the budget process was frustrating in ways that it has been for as long as I've been following it. Every budget includes items that are problematic, but it really was apparent that this budget felt like it was trying to sneak a couple unpopular items through, specifically the curriculum and the um, STEM academies. And those were two of the most rallied around budget items in terms of public comment and involvement by the public in those conversations. An RPS admin really argued in the name of equity for the curriculum, yet it slashed and in some cases zeroed out completely items that might have contributed to more equitable educational outcomes for our kids, like art and music supplies, PE equipment at our high priority schools. We were just like baffled when that came down the pike because we're like, you talk about equity, yet this is happening. Yeah, that um, word was thrown around like a hot potato. Dude, right? It was crazy. Um, it's all about equity yet we do all these unequitable things. So um, also I think, you know, we saw a familiar devaluing of teacher professionalism and their expertise. And two main examples kind of are, are very clarifying for me. One was public comments from teachers really urged the board to consider the timing of any curriculum adoption, but presentations of the curriculum carried undertones that teachers really found to be condescending, talking about, well, you know, we need this curriculum so that all of our students are getting the best education, as if teachers aren't doing that in their classrooms every day. And then the second example was the request by Representative Kenya Gibson that REA have a representative participate in the school board meetings. And that was never addressed by the board or honored. So that, was, that request was made early on in these virtual meetings. And we never saw that, you know, revisited or come up as a topic of, of possibility. So, And just for our yeah. listeners who are new, who is REA? Sure. The REA is the Richmond Education Association, and it, is lar it largely functions as what would be our union. So they represent us in conversations about public schools, specifically to Richmond public schools. And they didn't want to have those folks at the table? I mean, you can see how that presents a challenge to them when they're actually trying to roll some things through and teachers are like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? Right. I think that anytime you, you include teachers, things get complex because the work of teaching is so complex and it's so much easier to just disregard those voices. And particularly in budget discussions, we know that decisions are made like 50,000 feet up in the air where by individuals who have little to no insight into what happens in schools and teachers and school level personnel are left to have to triage those situations, you know. So having an REA representative would have really gone a long way to ensure that those needs and concerns were being discussed. The third thing that I wanted to chat about was the breakdown of democratic governance. I think we witness examples of this regularly by this board, but it was almost egregious in this process. I think we saw board procedures all over the place. It was hard to follow like which motions were being discussed and voted on when and RPS admin would bond to some board members comments and questions while others were largely ignored. Certain board members were literally silenced, you know, like certain things that we just saw that were like mind blowing. And, you know, don't even get me started on the lack of simultaneous translation services being ignored. I mean, that was just, that's a big issue for me that our entire Latinx and, you know, other communities who might require simultaneous translation don't get to participate in these meetings. And I mean, I spoke about this at a public comment or wrote in about this at a public comment. And then I've been talking with a number of community members that we had at least one parent submit 
public comment in Spanish. And that public comment was translated by somebody in RPS, published online with all the other public comments in English, read in English, with no acknowledgement that that public comment would, had been submitted in Spanish, and yet still no simultaneous translation services. So I just think that speaks to the fact that certain communities and certain people's perspectives don't deserve attention and don't deserve to be elevated. And that's really, really disturbing to me in terms of how the board operates and how the district operates. So on a basic accessibility level, before you get into the complex budget or curriculum, how can we engage with this material? Exactly. It's, um, you know, I think that there are a number of community groups that do a really nice job of interacting and engaging and, and getting people to those meetings, you know, how, what, in whatever format they are. But it seems that RPS has some sort of um, reluctance to engage with community groups. And we've seen this historically, you know, it's not just an issue this year and with this budget process. But I think the reluctance and the lack of insight when you're not engaging with those groups and from people from those perspectives is just really problematic in terms of moving us forward in the best direction. You know, and then like this last point that I'll make about the budget and then I'll stop talking and we can talk about other things, but was that, you know, the budget for me in, in my assessment was largely discussed in a, as a, like in a vacuum. Aside from a few moments of clarity by certain school board members, you know, I think we, we saw some critical questions being posed by Kenya Gibson, by Scott Barlow, but Jonathan Young, you know, some Felicia Cosby, some others who were really pushing back. There was little critical discussion of how priorities need to be shifted or revisited, which was really disturbing to me as someone who thinks about schools and how school will need to look different when we reopen. So I really would have liked to see more robust discussion of what we're doing to put money away um, to fund these possible scenarios that we know we can't necessarily predict, but we have to be prepared for. So there was a lot, a lot of messed up stuff with this budget. It was very frustrating to watch. I, and you know, I thought I was just going to pop in for a few minutes, but I really stayed for the entirety of that like six hour meeting. And yeah, scenario (laughs) planning kept coming up, the programming getting cut. There was just all types of back and forth that folks were having. And so I ask you, what needs to happen next to push forward a people-first education budget? And how does that change with COVID? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And this was not the first time that the, the, the board, it's like a perennial question that the board is like, do we put forward a needs-based budget? Do we put forward just the budget that the city is going to give us? And it's like that argument is just so frustrating to me. It's like your job as a school board is to present the full needs of the school district. And I think when it comes to a people first budget, the thing that we really need to focus on and get behind is getting elected officials in office, like elected to office that really stand for elevating voices who do their research, um, you know, lift up voices of the people. And I think that we have a couple candidates that I'm really excited about that do just that, that have been engaged in these fights with us for a long, long time, who have a history of pushing back and challenging power you know, campaigns are really ramping up. So I would encourage everyone to get involved. You know, we need those elected officials to act in the best interest of the city by really defending democratic governance and people first everything, I think. Yes, people first everything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I guess that means a little less of advertising and 
pushing for a curriculum um, and trying to sell it to people and perhaps listening to what people need and creating a needs-based budget. Exactly. This is Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Next up, we'll talk to Dr. Kristen Reed, VCU professor and co-founder of Richmond for All. Uh, my name is Kristen Reed. I'm a teacher at Virginia Commonwealth University, and I'm currently serving as the chair of the interim governing board of Richmond for All. And um, at RFA, I'm also co-chairing our public education working group. I spend a lot of my time on public education policy. Um, I come from a long line of educators in my family, and so um, this is some work that I really love. It's so good to have you here. So this week on the show, we're talking all about budget season in the city. Can you tell us a little bit of this history of the school board budget and what's all this talk of a new curriculum? Oh my goodness. So um, the school board just approved a new budget for the, the coming school year. And um, you know, this has been a little bit of a fraught process, and that has historically been true of the, the RPS school board. Um, I think it was just in 2017 that we had a big mobilization to the school board demanding a needs-based budget, which is a budget that really itemizes and makes very clear the full scope of needs for the schools. So if we actually need 10% more instructional assistance than we're currently trying to hire, a needs-based budget would actually just make that really transparent. So we know when our city um, is funding a budget that only partially meets our needs. Um, we have not really had a needs-based budget process since 2017. And part of what we have seen, especially last year, is Mayor Stoney kind of campaigning on a, a message that he has fully funded schools. But what he has, in fact, done is fully fund a budget that only asks for a portion of what we actually need. And so that's not, in my estimation, a fully funded schools budget. And we're seeing something very similar this year where in the context of budget cuts as the result of COVID-19, our school board and our administration are asking um, basically for what they think they can get and not what we actually need. And that's very concerning, right? Like 2017, it's 2020. That's mm -hmm. three years. So they approved the budget. And I heard like they were talking about curriculum, curriculum, curriculum. What was the deal with that? Yeah. So um, one of the, the issues that was really hotly debated in this budget was whether or not Richmond Public Schools would purchase a new curriculum from a private curriculum vendor for next year. Mm. Um, this was debated for a lot of reasons, one of which is we did a, a partial rollout of a pilot of a new math curriculum last year. That rollout, um, by the estimation of many teachers, was unsuccessful. It was a largely scripted curriculum. It was... Um, a new approach to teaching math that I think for a lot of teachers was not a good fit. It didn't really give them much professional autonomy in how they were um, creating their um, lesson plans and also how they were pacing uh, math learning in their classes. And professional autonomy is not just good for teachers to have, it's necessary for students who want to see their needs met in the classroom. A big thing that we do as educators is assess what our students need and then try to 
um, craft a curriculum that, pro that meets those needs. So when we buy a curriculum externally, there are kind of two issues that emerge, one of which is the question of whether or not a preset box curriculum can actually meet the unique need of our students. And the other is if this is even the right way to be spending public education money and public money in the first place. Right. Um, I, I think the answer is no on both cases. I don't think a box curriculum is good for students. And I don't think our public schools should be feeding money into private companies that were built just to take money out of our public schools. And so um, in this case, we have a couple of nonprofits that pull in a huge amount of money actually on curriculum sales. And um, the school board essentially provisionally approved money for that curriculum. This was a controversial ask. And what the school board actually did was say, they're withholding this, or they're holding this amount of money in the budget. They're kind of earmarking it for curriculum, but the actual vote on the curriculum won't happen until the beginning of June. And once that vote goes through, if the curriculum purchase fails, then that money can be reallocated for things like COVID-19 relief. And so in a whole, how does this budget have the potential to harm folks? And are there people that are really benefiting from it? Those are great questions. I'm going to ask, answer them in the reverse order. So the big wins in this year's budget really are for private companies that provide services or products for schools. It looks like we're going to be spending a lot of money, possibly, on curriculum. That could be up to $1.5 million. We also have another $1.5 million expenditure earmarked for a kind of like learning management system that would, that would uh, be an online service provider for students to like log into and access curricular um, items. And then, of course, a, a huge amount of money has been spent over the last maybe three months on the purchase of Chromebooks and Wi-Fi hotspots. And so some of that was public money and some of that was philanthropic money from sources like the Bloomberg Foundation. And so um, we're, what we're really seeing for this fall's budget is a major acquisition of privately produced materials for schools. And I, um, like a lot of people, I'm really worried about that when we don't even know if we're going to have face-to-face -face or um, online learning. And so we're making purchases for use when we don't even know what the circumstances of our use are going to be. Um, and like a lot of people in the city of Richmond, I have argued that we really need to be investing in social and emotional supports for students. So I think that actually needs to be things like book and physical material distribution. It needs to be leaning more heavily into our food distribution program. It needs to be investing in things like healthcare providers and social workers who can assess need and meet needs um, as kids are facing a, a really serious global public health crisis. Yes. And so... Um, I think that if we ask who is hurt by these expenditures, you know, I think it's hard to make the argument that there is like direct harm that comes, but I do think that there is a lot of um, residual harm that comes from wrongful allocation of public funds in our public schools. And I do think a lot of that can be harmful. I think perhaps the go-to example is the standardized testing industry. We spend billions of dollars every year on things like privately produced tests and testing prep materials, et cetera. Over the long term, that really harms kids, even though nobody's really harmed by just taking one test. I do think that the interference of the, the kind of like private education, profit industry into our schools creates a lot of implicit harm. 
just like uh, I think what it was it Greater Minds and they're moving their headquarters here and so thinking about these private industries like that's some real stuff that yeah um, of who is benefiting Yep. And that's something that um, school board representative, third district school board rep, Kenny Gibson was really pushing for us to um, talk about a little bit more. And she got a lot of pushback from Linda Owen, the chair of the school board for, for asking us to be thinking about this. But it is of course not a coincidence that a national curriculum company is moving to Richmond at the same time that our school administration is pushing very hard to privately contract with them to purchase curriculum. Great Minds is relocating from D.C. Our uh, school superintendent himself relocated from D.C. And so one of the things that a lot of um, public education advocates and parents have really worried about in the city is whether these decisions are being made based on kind of business and political relationships or actually the best needs of our kids. And our concern has been that we're seeing the former purchases made based on business and political relationships. I was on Facebook Live and I definitely saw Representative uh, Kenya Gibson raising some of these concerns and I really appreciated it. So yeah, it's, it's good to hear you say that as well. And so, Kristen, we always see and cross each other in this higher education arena. And so when I hear you talking about privatization, um, you know, students being harmed, communities being harmed uh, by policy, it really also makes me think a lot about Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, um, and all that's going on there as well with this crisis. Um, I know that the Board of Visitors is doing their budget conversation as well for next year. Is there anything that y'all are working on over there uh, with the professors? Yeah, so at VCU, I'm a member of the American Association of University Professors, AUP, which is a national um, faculty network that um, has its own in internal anti-privatization organization. And so one of the conversations that we've been having at AUP and also um, much more broadly in the faculty at VCU is the extent to which um, and in what ways VCU will be impacted by budgetary shortfalls coming out of the COVID-19 crisis or, or actually being within the crisis. So VCU is an institution that has lost a huge amount of public funding over the last 10 years. I've been at VCU 10 years. And part of what we see when funding for public universities is cut back is increased reliance on the private sector, which makes universities really vulnerable to privatization. And that's something that I worry that we see at VCU. We see a very tight relationship between um, what should be a public education institution and private real estate interests. That happens in part because of budget shortfalls, but it also happens because of how our Board of Visitors is appointed. Unlike Richmond's Public School Board, we don't have elections for the Board of Visitors at VCU. They're all appointed at the state level and as this kind of insider network that really fuels corporate interests. In this case at VCU in the last year, we saw Peter Farrell appointed to the Board of Visitors. Um, he is the son, of course, of Dominion CEO Tom Farrell. And oh, that was something. Say that again. <laughs> yeah. So... Farrell, son of Tom Farrell, Dominion Top Dog CEO, is yes. on VCU's Board of Visitors. Tom used to be on the board. So they just got the legacy situation going on. 
Yeah, they really wanted to make sure the listeners knew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they really do. And I think one of the things that I hear a lot in Richmond is, you know, pushback about the role that VCU plays in the community. And and those concerns are warranted. But I do worry that sometimes we fail to distinguish between VCU's top tier administrators and board of visitors and the institution itself, which is largely just workers and students and teachers. Those people don't actually have structural power at the institution. And so part of what you can see is something that we saw last year, which is VCU's kind of top echelon leadership coming forward to endorse Dominion's Coliseum Redevelopment Plan, while students and teachers and workers were kind of mobilizing against that plan. So there's a huge disconnect between the people who are appointed power at the institution and the people who really make up the institution itself. And you can see those dynamics playing out as we try to assess what the budgetary impact of COVID-19 is going to be. So one of the things that really feels true to me as a worker is that I haven't had a lot of avenues to have a say in what our working conditions are going to be in the fall. And one of the things that our provost said that was quite controversial last week in a town hall is that there are going to be furloughs of faculty, but that faculty are mandated to work through the furloughs. So they're not going to be off for the days that they're not being paid. Excuse and, me. No, <laughs> they're asking people to be working unpaid next year. Is that what I'm hearing, basically? Yes, yes. So we haven't seen a concrete proposal from the Board of Visitors. We won't see that until June 5th. But what has been telegraphed is 15 days of furlough, so th- or three weeks of um, pay loss for, for all workers, and an, an inability to simply be off for the days that we're not being paid, which is standard practice during a furlough. Now, the, the provost did indicate that it might be the case that Workers earning under $50,000 a year would be exempted from the furloughs, but that is not confirmed. And as you know, at VCU, we have a huge amount of wealth inequality in our workers. So our president is one of the highest paid presidents in the country. He earns about $1.2 million a year to serve as president of VCU. Um, and our adjuncts, who are some of our lowest, not, uh, not exclusively, but some of our lowest paid employees, can earn sixteen dollars to $20,000 a year without benefits. Some of our lowest paid positions, like in food services, for instance, are now contracted out to private companies like Aramark who make very, very large profit margins, underemploying people who used to be state employees at the institution. And so I think there's a large range of people who are going to be really negatively hit. And in part because of privatization, we don't even have a clear map of that because those contract employees like Aramark workers, they're not state employees. So they're not going to be necessarily discussed in these conversations about furloughs. Peace of mind, Jack. We could take a loss, we gon' get it right back. We could take a loss, we gon' get it right. We could take a loss, we gon' get it right. They find everything. This is Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris. To close out for today, we will speak to Ibi Han from the Virginia Student Power Network. Hey, um, I'm Ibi. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I am the director of the Virginia Student Power Network. And I'm based in Charlottesville, Virginia. I've been a part of VSBN, as we abbreviate it, since I was uh, really like a freshman in college. 
and I got involved as a student. So really, I think of VSBN as my political home and really where I became politicized to uh, how corporatization is affecting higher education in Virginia. So we're a statewide network of campuses all across the state of Virginia who are organizing for more affordable, democratic, accessible higher education. Yes. And uh, our listeners don't know, but I also work with Virginia Student Power Network. And Ivy and I have been homies uh, learning together really since we were youngins. So it's great to come full circle and have you here. This week, we've been talking a lot about budgets and privatization of education. And I know for higher ed institutions, VSPN has a lot of campaigns going on right now on campuses throughout the state. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Yeah, so I would say the biggest thing that we are working on right now is our student response to the pandemic. So, you know, everyone in Virginia is affected by COVID-19 and our universities, just like any other institution, have a role to play in making sure that students and workers and faculty are safe and have the adequate protections and resources that they need to survive this pandemic. So a lot of what we've been doing is rapid response organizing in the past couple months, particularly targeting our universities that, you know, are uh, very well resourced, we pay you know, tens of thousands of dollars in tuition to them, but yet they're really throwing us under the bus here with the pandemic. I mean, any student can tell you right now that what they paid for this semester is not what they are getting with an online right. education. And it's unfair to the professors as well to have to pivot so quickly to online teaching. And it's absurd that universities have it I, I can't think, I don't know that there's a single university in Virginia that has issued a full tuition refund to students. They have been issuing meal plan and housing refunds, but even then there's still problems. Like there was a huge scandal at VCU just a few weeks ago where um, the Honors College, they were actually moving out the students' belongings from that dorm in order to make room for hospital beds. But there was a complete lack of communication. There was no notification of the students ahead of time. They, it was a complete breach of privacy. And I think it just really underscores how the universities feel like they can just, you know, do whatever they want with students and there's not going to be any pushback. So that's what we've yeah. been doing at VSBN is trying to hold our universities accountable. We've put out a scorecard, you know, kind of grading them on how they've been responding and treating workers and students. So I know final season just wrapped up. Did any of our universities pass on the scorecard? No, I think across the board, it's pretty much C's or D's. Um, and we actually went and downgraded a few universities because it's been extremely hard for students to access money from the CARES Act. So VCU, George Mason, Nova Community College, all of those um, institutions got tens of millions of dollars in CARES Act money that was supposed to go, it's earmarked to go directly to students for any kind of financial need that they have. And yeah, I've just been hearing from students all across the state of how difficult it's been to access that money. It's not, it's still not enough. Undocumented students are also not included in the CARES Act money. So that's a whole nother population of folks that's getting left out as well. 
And this is huge when we're talking about budgets, right? Because then it goes, are we going to raise tuition next year? And then, you know, Kristen Reed is talking about how they're furloughing adjunct professors. And so to hear that universities are being given, you know, tens of millions of dollars and are still letting go people or talking about raising tuition, um, like at George Mason, it's pretty, pretty um, wild to me, at least. But it's great to hear that students are organizing against this and also stepping up to, you know, get their voices heard in this process. As they're sounding off about their learning environment and the state of education today, what do you think it's going to look like to include student voices in budget conversations moving forward? Yeah, so I think students have big roles to play at both the university and the state level. I know just as a state, given the economic forecasts, we're definitely headed towards some kind of austerity budget, and we need to make sure that our public education remains fully funded and remains a priority for the administration. And on the individual campus level, I mean, I always encourage students to attend Board of Visitors meetings. Really, that's where the power lies, especially in terms of they're the ones who vote on the tuition increases. They're the ones who, uh, you know, sort of check off the massive budget for each university. And the problem is, unfortunately, students don't have a voice on the Board of Visitors. Many BOVs have a student representative, but often that person uh, can be appointed, such as the case of the University of Virginia, um, and that representative doesn't have a vote. So, you know, it's absurd to think that one student could could possibly represent an entire student body. And also, without a vote, they don't have any power in that decision-making body. I also think it's really important, you know, not just to include student voices, but to also think about the entire power balance of the university, given that student, like, tuition revenue is one chunk of uh, the incomes for universities, but we also need to remember that particularly some of our more so-called elite universities, such as the University of Virginia and William and Mary, they have gigantic endowments that they are not tapping into. So even though these schools may say that their, you know, student tuition is their, you know, the, the most critical piece of revenue, we have these schools, especially UVA, with a nine billion dollar endowment. That's larger billion than with a B? Billion with a B, nine billion. And that's larger than the GDP of some countries. And it just shows like, you know, these universities are wealth hoarding and no longer an institution that's meant for the public good when they're just, you know, growing and growing and growing this endowment without actually having any of the university stakeholders actually reap the benefits of that. Yeah. And I think especially in COVID, it's pretty clear to see that when you see universities either furloughing uh, the folks that make the university what it is, our our, uh, professors, or they're raising the tuition and just saying, hey, students, y'all can pay for it, even when we have this huge endowment um, that we could tap into. So I think it's really important for folks to understand that the Board of Visitors at these universities hold a lot of power, and they also have access to a lot of money that they can be using right now in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, thank you, Ibby, for sharing that. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners about VSPN or anything that's gone on with you all? 
Yeah, so um, on Tuesday, May 26th, is our Youth Day of Action uh, to keep Virginia closed. I, there's often this, like, I think there's this mainstream perception of young people as just being really irresponsible, going out and partying, like, on the beach during the pandemic because they feel like they're invincible. And honestly, like, that perception is mainly of white young people, right? So mm -hmm. we know that as, like, young people of color in Virginia, we're actually the ones who are on the front lines doing work such as at grocery stores and retail in healthcare. And young people also need to pay rent, also need to, you know, are also food insecure. And we just wanted to uplift that young people are also demanding that uh, North End needs to keep the state closed and not move into phase two as it's currently is planned to for the entire state and then moving into phase one for Northern Virginia and uh, Richmond. So yeah, that's what we'll be up to on Tuesday. Nice. Um, anything that we can check out online or is there places that folks should follow Virginia Student Power Network? Yeah, all of our socials are at VA Student Power on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can check out our digital toolkit for our day of action at bit.ly backslash VSBN phone zap in all capital letters. So there you have it, folks. The youth are speaking out, and so are the educators. Now is a critical time to keep public education a public good. Make no mistake, our institutions of learning shape our young minds, those who will inherit our future. So when we talk about purchasing boxed curriculum, denying democratic process, cutting programs, and furloughing professors while throwing money into the hands of private corporations, we must demand that public education stays public. That means recognizing that teachers' working conditions are students' learning environments. In the midst of this pandemic, now is a time more than ever to put the needs of the students and the youth first in our budgets, in our master plans, in the curriculum we are purchasing, and in our everyday actions. So thank you and shout out to the youth, educators, organizers, and elected officials who are fighting to put the people first and the public back in public education. Thanks for listening and tune in next week to listen to Race Capital. Check out our website, www.racecapital.com, for more content. Listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio.